Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about everything from food and travel to the discipline and drive to create. I believe that passion begets passion, so come on with me and let's do this. First up, a quick housekeeping note. This is the end of season one of the Keep It Quirky podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe because I'm coming back and you want to stick around for it. I've already actually done some of the interviews for next season and I'm really excited to post them. But first, today is all about Paris. I recently took a trip back to Paris, my love, one of my one of my loves. I went to culinary school in Paris a few years ago. I went to Le Cordon Bleu. So Paris is very special to me. Today's guest is Lindsay Tremuda, also known as the unofficial mayor of Paris. We'll talk more about that in the interview. And stick around because after the conversation with Lindsay, I talk with Ryan, who I went to culinary school with, and his co-founders of the company La Main Noire. It's a really awesome tea company. They make all kinds of products, and they're also launching a brick and mortar store. I am really, really thrilled for them. So again, stick around for that conversation to hear what the these guys are up to in Paris. So today's guest is Lindsay Tremuda. She's an American who moved to Paris over a decade ago after she fell in love with the language and the culture and the people. And she didn't know what kind of a career she could possibly make out of these things that she loved. She knew she didn't want to be a translator. Well, she has made the most incredible career for herself. She's a writer and the author of the very successful book, The New Paris, which published last year. It's really insightful about this new period that Paris is going through. Forbes wrote about it and said that this book reveals a new Paris, which is something that Lindsay could do so well being an adopted Parisian, but also with the cultural and language context of being from outside Paris. And she continues these conversations beyond her book with her podcast, The New Paris Podcast. I really loved this conversation with her. You know, we talked about just trusting that the pieces would all fall together. She paved a path for herself that had never been paved before, and she shares that journey with us. And she gives us the scoop on her new book coming out. You'll hear it right here. It's a Q Katie, Keep It Quirky exclusive. So this is a really great interview, really fun. Lindsay is awesome. I met with her at her flat in the 11th arrondissement in Paris. Oui, hello. D'accord, c'est uh, And we were joined by her two beautiful cats. Oh, so he's like really into it. Coucou bonhomme, qu'est-ce que tu fais là? T'es sur la table? <gasps> and without further delay, let's hop into the conversation. Hi, Lindsay. Hey. Thank you so much for having me over to your beautiful Paris flat on this gorgeous morning. Thank you for coming all the way over to the 11th arrondissement. You have beautiful cats who are um, also a part of this interview process. Yes, I can't guarantee they will stay away and silent, <laughs> but they, you know, they're not like dogs, so <laughs> there won't be any barking at least. <laughs> Thank goodness. So, Lindsay, I'm going to start this by telling you how other people have explained who you are to me. And now now, we've known each other for about a year, but you have been explained to me as the unofficial mayor of Paris. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Which I think is pretty much true. And by that meaning that you know a lot of people, you're very involved, you have a certain 
clout among the communities here, and communities plural, expats and locals and artisans and business people. To me, what that says about you is that you are so in your element. It's almost like you are doing what you were meant to be doing with your life. And I'm curious if it feels that way to you or if that doesn't really strike a chord. First of all, I am bowled over by that because it, I mean, it's wonderful to hear that because, you know, when you're just doing the thing, you don't realize you sort of necessarily what that looks like from the outside. But I know my my parents would certainly be happy to hear that. <laughs> um, no, I do feel like it's t- it took me a long time to get to a place where I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to do. And that's partially by dint of, you know, not being in my home country. As you know, you know, that, that changes some things for you. Studying things that, you know, you might not actually work in, testing out, freelancing in a culture where, you know, it's, it, it's not necessarily appreciated to the same degree as as it is in the United States. So, you know, it's 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 sort of like creating a career for myself where, you know, I had always thought I was going to have an obvious path to follow. I realized along the way, like once I got to a certain stage, I would say to myself, well, I guess, you know, I just needed to have faith along the way. I would figure it out and things, the pieces would, you know, uh, match up eventually. But easier to think than to actually feel. I mean, totally. But once you do that enough and once you you realize, okay, this is bumpy. This isn't happening as fast as I want, or you know, this is going well, and maybe that's because of all these other things that happen. You know, once that happens enough, you start to realize, okay, this is a trend, and I just need to listen to myself. But you know, when you're 20, and you know, I came here when I was about to finish undergrad, and I, you know, you don't have a whole lot of life experience, and so in the beginning, all of those what I would call delays, where I wasn't necessarily getting right into a career, I didn't know what I was going to be doing, and I, you know, I wasn't earning salaries. Uh, I was, you know, trying to figure out, okay, do I go to grad school? Because that's the only way I'll get a job here. Meanwhile, everyone else I was watching back home, you know, was getting their careers off the ground. And so what I looked at as being a delay was really just like, okay, this is what you need to go through. But while you're living it, it feels scary. During that time was just moving back to the States and following a path like a lot of your university pals. Was that ever an option? Of course, it always is in your mind as like, this is always a possibility. But the further I went, or the longer I was in France, and and certainly I had a relationship with someone here, uh, who's I've been married to now for 10 years. And, you know, but in the beginning, you know, you're, you're invested in something else too. And so that really, it would have meant throwing away something else that I was building and not trusting that the rest of the pieces would fall together. And I think I wasn't really prepared to give up on this, this dream of making it work in, in the culture that I wanted to live in. Not that I wasn't didn't feel American because of course I I did and I do but you know I didn't I felt like there was something always a little off with me and that I that something like I was just completed when I was in France um and so for me it would have been giving up so your love of Paris, of the language, of the culture, eventually of a human here, was enough to sustain you to to get through all those bumps along the way to stay. It's funny because a lot of people come to France because they're diehard Francophiles. Um, and I, I have to say I was more of a, a French language lover. I, I The love of the culture and the people actually came later. But I, was a, I studied French literature. I was truly obsessed and enamored with the language and perfecting the spoken French language. And I'm going to interrupt you quickly and just say that you speak French like a dream. I mean, I mean, do people do people mistake you for 
a native French person? Yeah, I mean, that's that definitely happened. I mean, it's the most awkward, unhumble thing to say, but... I, I, it's okay, because I asked you to be unhumble, basically. Well, if you're asking. No, I mean, yeah, it does happen. But then usually somewhere along the line, they're like, oh, oh, we heard a little something. What is that something? Where are you, you know? So they just love that game of trying to pinpoint, but they usually can't guess where it's from. So... That already makes me happy. But um, no, so it's like that was my dream number one. And what do you do with a dream when it amounts to wanting to be perfectly bilingual in another language? Like end of dream. Like, what do you do with that? How do you make money with that? Right. I mean, you can maybe become a translator or an interpreter. But like, I didn't even want to do those things. I was just like, how do I make something out of wanting to just speak French all the time? Wait, so how did you piece together this <laughs> career that you have, have formed for yourself? And also, I'm going to pause right there and I want to backtrack a little bit to fill in more of the context of how you got to where you are now. So you're from Jersey. Philly. 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 Oh, no. <laughs> it's all right. You get, a, you get a free pass on this one. You are, correction, you are from Philly. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. And at what point did you realize that you loved French? Was it before you even ever came to visit France? Okay, so... No, I will say that, uh, so I started, um, you know, in middle school, we all have to take languages. I'm, I've, I've heard that the languages that are offered now for middle school students, and it, of course, depends on the state, has changed. But when I was in school, it was French, Latin, German, Spanish, and you take it in, in you know, your first year of middle school, you test them out for a year, and then you choose which one you're going to take for whatever the minimum requirements are. And I had a, a, a real uh, magnetic draw to, to French. I think part of that is also because my sister, who's nine years older than I am, had taken Spanish. Everything was Spanish in her sort of, you know, education in her life. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to be like her. So I went in a different direction. I mean, yeah. it's almost as simple as that. But that decision changed a lot of things. And so I continued with it. And I realized, you know, I was good at English, you know, the writing courses in high school. I was good at expressing myself. Math, science, like, let's not even talk about those things. So so with language, I was like, okay, here's a place where I'm excelling and it made me feel good about myself. And I was like, well, I'll just see where this goes. Never thinking, you know, because in, in, in school, it's never encouraged heavily to pursue these things. You know, you, you know, everyone sort of groans about having to take language. And I really think that's a, a big mistake in, in the American education system, but that's another discussion. And so I just kept with it. And it wasn't until I was 16 and went to France with my high school class over spring break. It's like a 10 day trip. We breezed through Paris, but it wasn't even focused on Paris. You know, we were traveling. We went to Normandy. We went to some of the chateaus in the Loire Valley. I mean, it was really a, a nice road trip. And that's where I was like, okay, I am surrounded by French. Check. Everything is beautiful. Obviously, you have rose-colored glasses on, right? But everything is beautiful. Check. There's so much culture everywhere. The only thing that I was uncomfortable with was the food. And that was because I was what my parents would call a gastronomic xenophobe for a long time. Well, and that's kind of ironic, right? God, my parents still laugh today that I have, like, first of all, when they see the certain things that I eat now, they're just like, you literally needed to leave the country to be able to expand your palate and eat more than scrambled eggs. But it's true. I, I, it opened my eyes in a number of ways. So that trip was, was huge for me. Plus the, the professor I had or the teacher I had in high school spoke in my memory, at least she spoke like a French person. Um, and, and I was like, I want to be, she's who I want to be. I want to be an American, you know, the American who can pass 
for a French person. And I was lucky because, you know, there are other sections in French in our year or whatever who had teachers that really made you not want to continue with language study. Yeah, the teacher is almost as key as the subject itself. So when you say that that trip, one of the things you loved so much about it was the culture, that there was so much culture. What does that mean? Just that when you were here, everything was unabashedly French? Well, there's that, but it's just the way that your average person connects with things in a deep way. They all seem to have sort of like a base level curiosity for whether it's the history of their own country, whether it's the arts, whether it's the culinary arts or or architecture, you know, like every single person we met, and these are not necessarily people who worked in any sort of cultural space or cultural institution, had just, you know, like a general knowledge of the value of of culture and were engaged in some way. I mean, even my husband, who obviously I met much later, but he doesn't liken himself to be a big lover of art or anything like that. But he knows a lot about very specific things that I don't think the average American would be able to hold forth about. And 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 that I think is very specific. Maybe it's it's actually you know quite common to Europeans in general. And that's but it's just that I was exposed to that in France. Um, but you know you're also you're faced with so much history. And you know I come from seeing the Liberty Bell and. That's great. And I'm very proud that Philadelphia is so important in the American, you know, in, in American history, but it's still a relatively young history. And and so when you're now faced with this like heritage that just you can't, you're walking through the, the, the things you read about in history books and you're just, I don't know, that sort of just like blew my mind. I think it's something that happens to a lot of people when they travel abroad for the first time, but that was enough to sort of confirm for me that I at least wanted to continue studying. I think a little microcosm of that is when you take food. I mean, every French person is a foodie, right? The term foodie, it's like, why does that even exist? Because it's just a given that every person is like that. And in America, you have you have actual foodies and then people who just don't care. Right. I mean, I, you will find people here who have bad taste. <laughs> Right. Usually it's the moneyed people (laughs) who, you know, are fine going to the same old bistros that haven't updated their menus or haven't done anything better or different in, you know, 30 years. But for the most part, they're open to learning about new ingredients, about, you know, cuisines from elsewhere and and how, you know, how that can integrate into their own food culture. Um, That doesn't mean there isn't ever reluctance, but there's a cure. There's, like I said, a a, a curiosity. And so if there's curiosity for the arts, that extends to food as well. You can speak from a very informed place about all this because you have discussions all the time for your podcast about French culture and identity and all the moving parts. You wrote a book called The New Paris, talking about everything that is happening here, but also looking at it through the prism of history and what Paris has been and will be become. So, and I want to get to what you're doing next, because I know you have some exciting things coming up as well. But how did you put together the pieces to to basically create a career? I imagine you didn't really have anyone that you looked up to saying, I want to do exactly what that person is doing, because you've created this out of thin air. And now other people can look to you and say, I want to do what she does. But you didn't have that, I imagine, right? No, I had influences, though. Uh, a few key key people who helped me get in the door. I will forever be grateful to Amy Thomas, a fantastic author and journalist who wrote Paris, My Sweet and Brooklyn in Love. And she 
she's also a contributor to the New York Times and other publications. And I met her when she was living in Paris for a few years. She was, you know, working in advertising and was based here. And when she moved back to New York, you know, I I knew she wasn't going to be able to necessarily cover every news, you know, like sort of um, event that was happening in Paris and to the same degree that she had been able to. And there was a um, an anniversary, big anniversary party coming up for Colette, the fashion concept store that has since closed uh, in December. But it was for their 15th anniversary. And I had my blog at the time, but I thought like this... Feel like I should aim higher. Like, at what point do I try to take content beyond, or take these ideas beyond my own site, and try to like, you know, I'd love to be writing for other places. Like, how do I, how do I make that happen? And I emailed her and I said, you don't have to give me a name. I don't want to step on any boundaries. But if you'd be willing to share with me, you know, your editor at uh, T Magazine at the time, this was uh, T Magazine, the style supplement of the New York Times online. I have an idea that I would love to run by them. And she said, you know, I can't make any guarantees, of course, but here's his name. Tell him I sent you. And I wrote to him and it was greenlit. And that changed everything. I mean, and and so when I see her and, you know, when she she came to my uh, a book event of mine last year and I, I mean, I almost can't help but feel emotional when I look at her because she did something for me that not everyone was willing to do. I had, you know, reached out to a couple of other people at that time. So this was years ago, asking for, you know, some advice or some support. And, you know, there were people, including women who clearly put up walls and, and Amy was willing to extend a hand. And, um, and, and that's, I think how it happens. You need someone to give you a chance. And she gave me a name. Obviously the editor could have said no, uh, but and, and, and obviously I had to make it work from there. You know, it's, I continued to propose ideas and then editors changed. And so I had to start a new relationship with the editors who came in their place. Um, you know, but Amy was really that first sort of the light of the match. And uh, I will forever be grateful to her for that. And, and to all the other people who have eventually, you know, along the way said, you know, contact this person, they might be able to help. And that's how it happens. But it also happens from spending a lot of hours doing research on LinkedIn or on Twitter, like who is the editor of this one section, I'm going to just try to cold pitch. And there's a lot of no, you know, crickets where you don't hear anything and it's horrible, but you keep trying. And so, you know, it's not that there was no one with my, with sort of a career exactly like what I was doing because I was also working in advertising, right? That's the other piece I forgot to mention. <laughs> that's, that's a big piece. So actually in, in some way it follows a little bit more like Amy's, Amy's trajectory because I needed to make money and uh, freelancing. I wasn't ready to, I mean, I didn't have the skills to be full-time freelancing and I needed to pay bills and whatnot. And my master's was in global communication. So I was working in, in in startups and then freelancing on the side. And then when I got laid off for the second time at a startup, um, I, you know, put sort of like an SOS message on Facebook. And one of my husband's sort of tangential friends messaged me and said, I work at BBDO, which is, um, you know, the Paris office of that global agency. Um, we need someone to do, you know, sort of social media strategy and writing in English for uh, an international client. And it's sort of like, urgent, would you be able to meet with us? And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. So that was actually in 2011 before I started really freelancing heavily, but like, that's how I got, I got in and and I was working while I was freelancing and freelancing didn't mean, you know, it was five articles a week. No, but it was enough where that's how I was getting my foot in the door. So I did have to, you know, I was doing other things and I love social media. So that's another piece of this puzzle is like getting yourself seen on platforms as they're emerging that I only really knew how to do because I was doing it in startups before anybody was, you know, knew how to do it. And then I was doing it in an, in an agency setting for big global brands. I mean, you and I are of the same generation. It's like, I think we 
both in a way got lucky to have been thrown into social media and the internet at a time when we could still see how it could be powerful. Now we're seeing a lot of the negative effects of it, but it was hugely instrumental in in getting my myself out there. And had I come along maybe five years later, it would have been much harder. So, you know, eventually I, you know, started to realize like, if I don't try to go freelance, I'm never going to know if I can even make this work. And a very smart friend of mine said, you should just pull the Band-Aid or rip the Band-Aid as it were. And, you know, even if you give yourself just until the end of the year and you see how many connections you can make and you can always go back and try to get another job. So that's what I did. And it happened to coincide. I put in my resignation as I was delivering a proposal for this, for the new Paris, because I had had the idea. It sort of came along because I had been writing all these articles for several years, looking at how the city was changing. And then I thought, you know, but nothing really pulled all those changes together across themes. So not just in food, but even in urban development and in in fashion and shopping and this revival of craftsmanship and the emphasis on artisanry. And so I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. And I pulled together this proposal. Meanwhile, I'm resigning and I'm ready to pull my hair out because I feel like I'm, I mean, it's terrifying, right? Leaving a job, leaving that stability, but also feeling like if I don't do this now, you know, I might get swallowed up and lose who I am, right? In France, and this is the hard part, you have to give three months notice. Three months? No, no two weeks, three months. The two weeks courtesy is, is like just, you hear I'm having trouble speaking (laughs) because I just don't understand how that works. But the three months, if you're of a certain uh, level in in a company, not, not um, in terms of position, but a certain type of employee in a company. So you're not paid hourly, you're a salaried worker. Typically it's three months notice. Sometimes you can negotiate. I tried to bring it down to a month or a month and a half. They had every right to refuse and they did. So I was there for three months, then, you know, still waiting to figure out, okay, was I going to get, was this book going to go through? Um, And I had one call with a publisher, Abrams. The others I was learning from my agent were not convinced that uh, they wanted to take the chance on a version of Paris that wasn't the familiar fairy tale. The romanticized, yeah. yeah. Which I was like, okay, obviously that's not this. Mm-hmm. So, oh, oh, well, they don't want to take a chance. Okay. Um, and then no joke, I left the company April 2nd or whatever. And by April 15th, I had an offer from Abrams. So, you know, you don't, you don't know when you're ripping that bandaid that, that the pieces are going to align. And sometimes they don't align that way. But, um, you know, I had the one offer from the, you know, the publisher that I think was, and still is the best fit for me and for this, for that book. And then I got started. And so, God, if I had not left the company, I don't know how that book would would have been written. And that year was tough, too, for a number of reasons. You know, in January of that year, also after I resigned, was Charlie Hebdo. And then in November, as I was writing, was the November November 13th attack. So it was not an easy process, but like then it felt even more necessary. There's so much about your path that I think is it's noteworthy in like some of the basic elements. So the hustle. The hustle was not alone, though. It was not standalone. The fact that you had Amy, like that other people along the way that any successful person does not just get there on their own 100%. Like it's the hard work, it's the effort, it's the drive, but it's the community around, it's the connections that you make as well. I think so. And and I'm not saying, you know, I didn't expect anyone to hold my hand. And, and I do feel like what's changed today is there's a lot of, you know, I get a lot of requests for advice and people wanting to understand how to, how to make it work, especially writers, but they don't 
seem to be doing that first bit of research that I think I like I never contacted people at the time without having first identified like these are the people I've scoped out at these magazines that I think are the right people to contact this is these are the series I want to I want to be writing for like I had done a lot of background work first and I don't feel like I think people expect someone to just sort of give them the key I, that, that doesn't ha- I, at least for me that doesn't work that that isn't how this works for people but yeah no you're never alone and then that was also reassuring because I would see other people who were freelancing and doing other things and I was like okay so it's possible it's hard but it's possible and then I you know Twitter because of Twitter I was connecting with other writers based in the states or in London or wherever who were similarly trying to do a bunch of things and usually it was because they had to because journalism was already changing the media landscape was already changing and they couldn't just get by writing full-time as a freelancer they had to do consulting or other things and yeah I'm gonna say it I still consult because it's it's too unstable uh, you know that's that's where writers today need to diversify and be doing a, a variety of different kinds of writing and I would even say that your diversification helps you create the kinds of things that you create right like if you hadn't had all of the experience that you had leading up to writing the new Paris like you wouldn't even know that there was a void there that needed to be filled that you could fill. And by the way, Abrams was really, really smart to sign you because your book has been a hands down success. Congratulations. Thank you. No, Abrams was wonderful. I mean, honestly, I can't. They were a dream. And, um, you know, I'm just so thrilled that people really took to this book. But, you know, if I look at my experience in an agency setting and and learning, you know, the ins and outs of ins and outs of, of promotion via social media, I mean, like without that, I don't know if I would have been able to handle the, the promotional part of 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 the book release. You know, there are all those things you learn along the way that come back into play with other projects later on. And uh, and so, you know, yes, the, the landscape continues to change as we've seen. The podcast is a, certainly a different space, but I, I know that works in a different way, you know, and... Uh, and it's allowing you to continue the conversations that you started with the book. So talk to us a little bit about the New Paris podcast. I really looked at it as a, as a like you just said, to continue the conversation and, and maybe take it in areas that I wouldn't have been able to take it in in the book either, you know, talking about immigration in more serious ways, talking about feminist issues that actually surfaced more recently, Me Too movement. You dedicated an entire episode to to that very topic. Well, and that was sort of trying in, in an attempt to be very reactive, like, okay, this just happened. And that was one of the episodes I did as well with uh, Lauren Bastide, who has a very, very famous podcast here called La Poudre. And she's one of the leading voices of sort of the modern uh, feminist movement. Um, and, and it's voices like that that I think continue what The New Paris started anyway. And that was my hope, was that The New Paris simply talks about this period of change and leaves it open for how that's going to continue evolving. And these people are part of how that change continues. And um, and that's sort of how I'm going to continue with the next project. So what is next in your publishing life? Oh, God. So I'm lucky I have any hair left to show you because <laughs> so I'm currently working on book two, which is it's not a direct sequel to The New Paris, but it is in the sort of continuity of, of what I began there. And that's looking at the transforming city through its women. 
You're the first person that's hearing it. This is so exciting. I knew... Scoop! Oh my gosh. (laughs) I had heard whispers that you were working on a second book. The very, very talented photographer, Joanne Pye, is working with you. Wow, this is so exciting, Lindsay. When is... What's the... When is the release date? Is that even a thing? Oh yeah, the release date is supposed to be spring 2020. So that's the other thing that's scary thing about publishing, which, you know, everyone doesn't... No one one in in the readership world thinks about but yeah it's very long when you do a book so i have a manuscript to deliver uh end of january and then you know it's the same exact process and timeline as my first one which is you know you deliver it and then it goes into layout and then you get what's called passes so you have to review it you get edits and queries and questions and then you can add on it if things change you know in the with the information that you've included you have time to take it out or update it and then there hits a point of no return where then nothing can be updated before it goes to print, but that's later on in, in 2019. But it's a long process. But, uh, you know, I've been basically spending since since I got the green light, I mean, so April, May, I've been spending time talking to a whole lot of people. And it's been eye opening. I mean, even just from a, you know, no matter what happens with the book, uh, from a personal perspective, this has been the most enlightening. I mean, I said that about the first one, but this is enlightening in a different way. And it's certainly in a way that that affects me directly as a woman. I am <laughs> So thrilled to have this scoop. I am so excited for you. And I am excited to get my hands on it in 2020. Going into a book proposal, did you know what the new Paris book would be like specifically when you went into the proposal or no? You're shaking your head. So it's an evolution. Do tell. It's an evolution. I mean, I had the skeleton and some people might tell you the opposite, that they were like so clear on everything. And maybe for cookbooks, for example, or food related books that it you know, the vision is is crystal clear. But because I was talking to people, even with the new Paris, I was talking to people who then helped shape the idea and crystallize it even further. You know, it really took on a much different scope. So I think it became more ambitious as I was writing it. And this one too, I think I want it, I wish it could have like 400 pages. Like that's the other problem is that you're like, it starts off ambitious because I feel like I could talk to like a million people for this book. And then you're like, whoa, you do not have enough time for that. So you have to go with the flow. You have to, you know, stay true to what your vision is, but also make sure that vision is clear enough and you know exactly what, like, what is that core message? What is it that you, what's going to be the takeaway? Because then even if you adjust along the way, as long as it's still meeting back to the idea that eventually, you know, gets approved by your publisher, then, you know, you're still telling the the right story. So you just have to have faith that in your original idea and in the process. That's great. Again, easier said than done, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm telling you this and I should be listening to it myself. Okay, right? Yeah. In the context of you pulling out your hair because there's so much happening and oh my gosh, you need to write the manuscript. Lindsay, how do you keep it quirky? How do you how do you let down your hair um, and remind yourself to take life a little lighter? Those who know me will, of course... Uh, not be surprised by this, but it's through the cats. I'm not kidding. Uh, I live in the present thanks to them. I was very bad at living in the moment for a long time. They're de-stressors. I'm always rolling around on the floor slash wherever they are. 
which might be on top of a laundry machine. It might be in a closet. I don't know, but I'm always with them and, you know, just sort of getting lost in, in, in their world. And I think that's one very good way of taking all the seriousness out of, out of life um, and, and making it all about joy and connection. And they will forever be perfect sources of of quirkiness for me. I love that. And let's be honest, I think the cats are the real stars of this podcast episode. Uh, yeah, one of them was like, I don't even want to be on this show, so I'm going to go. <laughs> the other one has walked by several times to show off. So no, I mean, they they have so much personality. And I not that I learn from them, but I learn a lot about life through them. Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing your path, for sharing your passion. Thank you for coming on the Keep It Quirky podcast. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> Au revoir. Au revoir. Thanks so much for listening. And you can follow Lindsay on Instagram and Twitter at Lost in Cheeseland. So that's L O S T and then the letter N Cheeseland. You can also check out her blog at Lost in Cheeseland, and that's in I N lost in Cheeseland, and of course pick up her book The New Paris and wait for her second book coming out in 2020. Also I want to give a quick shout out to my good friend Rebecca Pepler who just released a new cookbook. It's called Aperitif Cocktail Hour The French Way. It just launched yesterday. It's going to be huge. I can already tell Sam Sifton wrote about it in the New York Times. I'm so excited for her. I actually shot a video with her while I was in Paris and the video with her all about Aperitif will be on my YouTube channel later this week, this Friday. Check out The Q Katie on YouTube. And I mentioned my culinary school buddy Ryan at the top of the episode. So he and some of his friends founded a company called La Manoir. They have just launched a crowdfunding campaign at Ulule. I hope I'm saying that right. U-L-U-L-E. They're going to open a storefront in Paris and it's going to be awesome. Their tagline is making innovative products for inspired people. These are the kind of guys we want to talk to on this podcast. So without further delay, here they are. I am in Paris, France right now and we are out getting an apéro. People having a good time at the end of a workday. But I am with the dudes of Le Man Noir. Let me start with introducing you to Ryan Milstein because he and I went to culinary school together. Hi, Ryan. Hey. You completed the entire Le Cordon Bleu culinary program. And then what? Then afterwards, I started working. Uh, I did a stage for Guy Savoie, uh, which is a three-Michelin-star st- three restaurant in Paris. Spent six months there. And then afterwards they employed me which was awesome Uh, and I moved up a little bit and worked up in some more senior positions. And so I definitely know you as an incredible chef. You were the top student in our class but you have taken a little divergence since then. You have founded a company with these two other men who we're sitting with who we will introduce you to in just a moment. What's the company? The company well as you said is called La Manoir. We refer to ourselves as a collective. Uh, Ultimately the the idea of our business is to find areas that could be improved within the coffee shop and brunch culture in Paris. I think a big part of what we want to bring to Paris as well is accessibility. Uh, for a long, long time, especially in Paris, a city well known for haute cuisine and gastronomy, uh, techniques and care and uh, attention to ingredients 
has been associated with high prices, has been associated with uh, spending three or four hours at a restaurant with beautiful silver cutlery and amazing glasses, but you pay a high price for that and it's not easy to find if you're young and if you don't have a lot of means. And what we want to be able to bring is is modesty. Introduce us to your co-founders. Uh, so first we have Ludovic Fekete uh, and we have Quentin Gauthier. Uh, both of them I met in Melbourne uh, and then after a few years of moving around the world, we happened to find each other again in Paris and uh, there was just no questions that we wanted to work together. Bonsoir. <laughs> Bonsoir. So this is Ludo I'm talking to. Why were you intrigued to start this company? It began in, in Australia when I met Quentin and Ryan. We knew that at some point we would meet in Paris, but that was all a little bit uh, blurry. blurry. Yeah. There was something that Ludo said to me in Melbourne. Uh, I've remembered it since, and I've said it to many people. He said that the thing that surprised him about his experiences in Melbourne was that it was the first time where he he saw a public and a city where if you go to a cafe and you order good coffee, and they're known for good coffee, that you expect to have the same quality of food next to it. Certainly in France, we've seen that there are places doing great things, but they're off, there are complementary products which are often neglected. Uh, uh, for the focus on one thing uh, and I think we were all really uh, really motivated to create more of a universe of quality rather than focus on coffee focus on one specific thing Quentin how did you get involved um, the same uh, when I met the, the two guys there we just clicked we just knew that there was something to do but it's when we came back to France that we realized that there was really something to do about the, the brunch and, and coffee culture there just to, to bring the, the coffee culture in France uh, a bit further up, uh, especially about the food and a bit about the, the coffee and the alternative products going with coffee. So it sounds like this is something that has percolated for many years but has come to fruition now. We've developed multiple products but we don't want to stop there. Uh, we want to be able to have a space that will allow us to continue developing, continue creating new things. We also will be able to do some really, really cool things on the weekend. We'll be able to do brunch, uh, completely different where the menu that changes every Saturday and Sunday based on the season. And to see it, and to see us like producing, like creating. So these guys are filling a void, which is something that we talked about before. It's not in Paris that Paris is hungry for, that people here will definitely enjoy. And Quentin, you you said something that was quoted on the Le Manoir uh, Instagram account recently, which I thought that a lot of entrepreneurs could relate to, which is that you'll never work for anyone else again. Uh, I, I think that if anyone would have the chance to live what we are living at the moment, it's truly amazing to work with friends and to see that things are going onwards and we are succeeding. There's no doubt that there's something really special about uh, about about feeling what you create. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're selling what makes you happy uh, in a simple way. You're you're going to the public and you're you're finding things that make you passionate, make you get up in the morning, and you're able to transmit that and, and communicate that to other people and see the joy that they can take as well. And that that's a feeling you can't get. You just can't get it in the other job when you're working for someone else. It's as simple as that. That's really well said. I will put in the show description all of their stuff so go support them and thanks guys for uh, for hanging out in Paris merci beaucoup merci ciao 
can check them out on Instagram, La Man Noire. That's L-A-M-A-I-N-N-O-I-R-E. I love Paris. I love France. It was such a blast visiting. And thanks again to La Man Noire guys and Lindsay for hopping on the mic with me. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you are not already. That way, when the new season comes up, it'll bing, pop right in your feed as soon as it comes out. As always, thank you to my incredibly talented musician brother, Brian Quinn, for the funky theme song you hear here. All right, I will see you guys very soon. In the meantime, you can follow me at QKady on Instagram and don't forget to keep it quirky. I'll see you before too long. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.